AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. So, John, you got an interesting article about Wi-Fi phishing attacks around Atlanta City Hall. Do you want to tell us about it? Uh, yeah, sure. Thanks, Tony. So. Uh, the story is more so about the phishing attacks than who was targeted, but um, sometime a month or two ago, I think the city of Atlanta had a big ransomware um, attack against them, and it was talked about in the media. Since that time, there have been some security researchers kind of looking around um, Atlanta, uh, particularly around City Hall and whatnot, trying to determine if there's any uh, risk exposures there. And what they've discovered is that there are some actors out there setting up Wi-Fi hotspots that are purporting to be a hotspot for something legitimate for the like you know the city of Atlanta or whatnot. Uh, we call that the evil twin attack. So it's basically you would set up a Wi-Fi router that has the same um, wireless name as something legitimate. Uh, so that hopefully people have you know set their devices to automatically join those networks, and when they see your fake one, they join it because it's got the right name. When you're connecting that Wi-Fi network, you're in a sense trusting that that network is going to deliver your data safely. So in the case of someone connecting to an evil twin, you know they can capture traffic that's being sent to them. They can send them to other malicious sites. Um, they could do a lot of bad things. Typically, a lot of them, what they'll do is they'll either try to set up some kind of captive portal and lure you to put your credentials in uh, or try to trick you, almost like a phishing scheme. So really, the, um, I guess the takeaway for me is that this kind of stuff is going on. Um, it's not just there. This happens in a lot of places, especially uh, places that people might visit a lot, like um, coffee shops, airports, uh, a lot of these places where you'll see uh, free Wi-Fi, there are bad actors out there who will set up these basically rogue type of access points that are purporting to be the real thing, trying to trick you, your device, into joining it. From a user's perspective, it, the SSID looks the exact same, the Wi-Fi name is the exact same, so you know, your device might be configured to connect automatically to that particular Wi-Fi network and it may do so without your knowledge. Now, you, you spoke about, um, you used the term evil twin. Uh, that tells me that it's much different than a man in the middle attack. Uh, so can you go into that a little bit more for me so I can understand it? Well, they might actually combine it with a man in the middle type of uh, arrangement. Uh, so the evil twin is really just trying to look like the wireless access point is trying to look like another legitimate access point. And then once you connect to it, they might do something that tries to man in the middle uh, the connectivity to wherever you're trying to go to. Uh, and then you know capture those packets and decrypt them. So they're really kind of complementary uh, types of um, attack vectors that would work together. So it's just one of those things where you just got to be aware. If you see anything suspicious when you do connect, be careful. I just think it's an important thing to make people aware of because sometimes people go to, you know, such and such coffee shop and they see, you know, whatever coffee shop guest access and they just join it thinking that it's, you know, it's going to be fine, but it might not be. It could be, um, it could be somebody sitting in that uh, coffee shop with their laptop set up as a rogue Wi-Fi hotspot trying to, you know, collect credentials and whatnot. So something to be aware of. And I would add that it's 
it's really hard to teach people to distinguish between an evil twin network and the network that they're used to. So in this situation, what would you what would you do in defense of that sort of thing? What would the Atlanta City Council do in that defense? Well, I mean, what I would probably recommend is try to hunt them down, um, especially if they're they seem to be permanently fixed and they're there all the time, uh, which is not necessarily easy to do. We know we've had to hunt down mm -hmm. rogue Wi-Fi hotspots uh, on occasion uh, for our customers or ourselves, and it's not always the easiest thing to do. Um, but that probably is a good way to try to help secure yourself. Yeah, it's a tough problem to solve. I, I mean, you could run an audit of the different Wi-Fi networks in the area, just see which ones are legitimate, see which ones are malicious. But again, that goes, that goes down the road of eventually you're going to need to hunt for one. Um, and that's, that's difficult, very difficult. Right. Yeah. The one other thing I would say is uh, if you are going to use public Wi-Fi, I would highly recommend that you have some sort of VPN software like right from the get-go. So your device doesn't do anything unless the VPN is uh, nailed up. And there are a lot of these uh, VPN services out there available that you can set up, or even your corporate VPN if it's a corporate type device. So Tony, it looks like you got an article on some DNS linked to data theft. Why don't you tell us a little more about it? So the article that I'm discussing today deals with a DNS threat report. Uh, the, the threat report was drafted by a European-based uh, DNS security uh, company, and they surveyed um, a large amount of companies uh, globally. And what they found was really interesting that within Europe in general, 40% of the 400 companies within Europe that they surveyed had problems related to DNS issues for either incidents, data breaches, uh, so on and so forth. It covered a lot of gamut of different types of DNS-based things, from spoofing uh, to DNS uh, reflection attacks, um, DNS exhaustion attacks, uh, or even DNS tunneling and malware that uses DNS as exfiltrations. They had also discussed about uh, GDPR and how that, you know, these, these companies in Europe really need to focus on trying to secure data that's around their customers or their users. And uh, since that's in play now as well, that uh, we should probably be looking at, you know, globally, uh, trying to do uh, some better things with DNS. Yeah, I mean, uh, DNS obviously is part of the control fabric of the internet, right? So uh, very little can happen without DNS functioning properly. DNS controls pretty much everything that happens between your device and the internet. It can't really happen in most cases without some DNS coming into play. Historically, we've had a lot of abuse over DNS, either DNS reflection attacks or um, you know, DNS uh, tunneling which we've also seen uh, with some types of tool sets. Um, but the thing I think is probably more relevant to the whole conversation with GDPR and data theft and data exfiltration is when you start talking about um, the DNS-based malware that's been kind of coming into play more so over the past five years. And there's a lot of this point-of-sale malware. Um, and then there's some actor sets like Fin7, which are big group of like credit card theft guys. 
Um, they use DNS as the a lot of these tools for point of sale and Fin7. They like to use DNS as the command and control mechanism as well as an exfiltration mechanism um, because a lot of security analysts don't really pay a lot of attention to the DNS traffic like they do their proxy logs and their firewall logs. And DNS a lot of times has unfettered kind of access in and out of your net corporate networks a lot of times. So where a firewall might a firewall proxy might block a connection outbound, rarely will it block DNS-based queries um, back and forth. And so there's actors out there who are using that more so lately. It's one of those things where uh, security analysts in, in those parts of the world need to probably pay a little bit more attention than they, they might have been uh, to events that occur with respect to DNS type security events. It's, it seems like a little bit of a culture difference between America and Europe where you know, maybe they, they don't take a look at DNS as much as we do. Uh, I know, you know, you know when I got here, uh, I was told and, I, and I, I read quite a bit that DNS is often ignored um, and it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be ignored. You should pay attention to what's going on in your DNS records. Um, you, should have the, you should invest in the visibility in it, but you should also have analysts reviewing it um, you know, don't be afraid to alarm in that space as well. So. You know, I, I completely agree with everything that that you've said. And hopefully with, with these uh, various attacks and issues, you know, all of us in a global community can kind of just chip away at it and try to decrease it as, as much as we can. But the, the actors are, are always out there and always trying new things. Don't ignore your DNS, I think, is the important takeaway here. It's a, it's a lot of data going through there. It's, it's a critical service to the Internet. In most cases, the, it, the Internet can't function without it. And from a security analyst perspective, it's very important that you have visibility into your DNS activity, but that you also go through steps to analyze it and alarm on it. Uh, so Andy, you know, I know the IoT space, we talk about it all the time with stuff getting compromised. And notably in that space, there's a lot of these web cameras or DVR type cameras. And it sounds like you have another, uh, have a story about um, something in that regard. I do, yes. Uh, an IoT research company actually discovered that uh, what they call a critical chain of vulnerabilities in uh, FOSCAM security cameras. Okay, FOSCAM. So the first one is actually an arbitrary file deletion vulnerability. So uh, through the web API for the camera itself, uh, what an attacker can do uh, is actually access a, a function on the web API without credentials um, that is, is its intended purpose is actually to delete screenshots that the camera takes once it's been uploaded to the user. So this, the underlying code actually suffers from a path traversal vulnerability. Okay. So you can invoke the function and then use the dot dot slash. Uh, right, to kind of back yourself to, up. To back yourself up. To whatever file you want to really delete. Exactly. Deeper, yeah, yeah, all the way to the root. The second vulnerability is actually a stack-based buffer overflow vulnerability. So there's a function where a user can pass in a, a parameter, and that parameter is actually saved in a variable that has a specific size. So an attacker can leverage that and intentionally send in um, a, a large string to overflow the buffer and crash the web service. So uh, you can configure the NTP server on these cameras. Mm -hmm. um, the command to do so actually requires uh, admin credentials, but like we've seen, right? You, you have bypass. them now. You right. have you. I mean, <laughs> you don't technically have them. Well, right. But you've bypassed that that check entirely. So what you can do is you can call this function and pass in a URL for the NTP server. Um, that input is not sanitized. 
So it allows for spaces, but it also allows for semicolons, which lets you break out of that shell and run a new command. And uh, one of the things that this research company found was that all the processes that run on this camera actually run as root. So when you you inject that command, that command also runs as root, um, which is not good. Um, and a lot of these a lot of these uh, vulnerabilities they fall under somewhat basic security uh, concepts. You know, mm -hmm. like uh, like the OWASP top ten probably. Yeah, yeah. Separation of privilege. Don't have all the pro all the processes running as root because if you, you get in anywhere, you, you're in kind of in the same level, which is not good. Um, and then the input sanitation, which we see a lot with web vulnerabilities like SQL injection, things like that. Um, really, with, with any user input, you should be extra careful and you should make sure that you're only allowing the specific set of characters that are necessary. Whitelist them, in, in a sense. Right, right. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things I have to say about this. But um, so, like you said, input sanitization, I would say like nine times out of 10, every type of pen test or when I look at an application, that is usually one of the things I'll find is that whoever wrote the code doesn't do good input sanitization of uh, data that's sent in. I guess the one thing I was going to also say about this IoT, very hard space in general in terms of keeping it secure because a lot of people just take this stuff, they set it up, and they never think that they have to do anything with it. As long as it keeps running, they never patch it, never do any of that. A lot of people take these devices, they put them on their network, they just expect them to work. They don't do a lot of maintenance like they might do on their Windows machine or something like that, you know, in terms of applying patches and whatnot. So definitely something people need to pay attention to. Uh, I guess the one thing that I would like to see more so, and a lot of vendors are doing this now, is to implement auto-update features in their firmware. So when a new version comes out, uh, the device will check and it'll automatically apply it and reboot it or something like that. And I know a lot of home routers are doing that now. Um, but I don't know that everybody is because, you know, it requires more software development time, more yeah. tests. And a lot of times they just want to get these products out to market as quick as possible. So um, uh, I guess we'll see how that goes. Now, Andy, I got a quick question for you. The, uh, the research was done and it was announced. There's nothing in the wild uh, that was provided, correct? So these researchers were partnered with, with the company. They said, this is what we found. Uh, there's going to be some firmware stuff that's going to be updated, but no one threw exactly how to do it out on the internet, correct? Yeah, that's correct. The, the research company did state in the article that this has not been seen or used to the best of their knowledge in the wild at all. Um, so this is purely in a, in a, in a lab setting. Um, and it also mentions that, that they have worked pretty closely with Foscam to get a new firmware um, that's not vulnerable to these uh, vulnerabilities here pushed out. So you're right. With IoT devices, a lot of the time you see people will, will buy them, they'll install them, and then they'll sort of forget about them. Now in this case, it, your users should be proactive in making sure that any updates that get pushed out by the vendor or the manufacturer get installed on the devices themselves. In cases like this where security vulnerabilities are patched, they just need to be applied to the device itself. So we had Andy on the show. He's one of the newer members of the team. So it's good to get some different perspectives from people. So I always like adding people in. It was fun having Andy on the show this week. Being on Threat Track was great. It was my first time. Um, I had a lot of fun. Um, I had a lot of fun researching the, the articles and, and reading through them and then talking about them with uh, some of my peers. All right, Andy, so I thought we'd take a look at the internet weather for this week. Um, and this is the first chart. This is the most pro ports, so it kind of gives you an idea of what ports are being scanned by sheer volume 
of scan port, uh, scan probes. You know, we talk about these all the time, these ports, so I'm not gonna belabor them in depth because we talk about Telnet and SSH, which are number two and three. But we're gonna focus in a little bit on ones that are probably more interesting. The one I thought we'd look at instead is port 8545 TCP because there has been a little bit of a change there. And uh, that is the Ethereum, um, it's the Ethereum kind of port for communication for that cryptocurrency that they have on the GETH um, um, software package. So we're gonna take a closer look at that. And what I tend to like to look at more so is this chart which has the most sources probing. So we're gonna take a look at port 8080 um, because that one's a little bit interesting. Uh, port 5431 is confusing and we'll kind of revisit that one because we've talked about it before. Uh, and port 5555 TCP, we'll take a closer look at as well. So let's take a quick look at port 8545 TCP. This is Ethereum. The Ethereum wallet, there was a new story that came out recently about a $20 million heist um, over Ethereum, so that was interesting. So I thought we'd take a look at that port, 8545 again. It's kind of been going on for, I would say, probably at least a year now uh, that this has been scanned pretty heavily. It's not a lot of actors scanning it. Um, it's a small number of actors, but they're doing it in a lot of volume. And um, the guys at 360 NetLab, which is a Chinese cybersecurity firm, they determined through some of their security analysis that there's an actor that very recently was able to um, exploit a bunch of these Ethereum-based wallets and um, actually get $20 million in uh, Ethereum cryptocurrency, which is quite a bit of money. So they found enough of these open wallets that they're able to steal that amount from them. So that's pretty significant. What's, what's interesting here is that the Ethereum clients are actually, they're not configured by default to be open on 8545. So a lot of these, a lot of these people are actually getting these clients and then they're you know, messing with some settings. Right. And they're not realizing that they're now open to 8545, and there's people that are that are actively scanning for those ports. So right, there's a lot of activity around there, and as you can see, it looks like there's some money to be stolen um, yes. if your device is vulnerable. It's nothing to scoff at. Twenty no. million dollars. No. <laughs> so let's move on to port 8080 TCP, which is uh, an interesting one as well. This is the um, GPON vulnerability. So GPON router is um, a very popular router, mostly overseas, not so much in the US, but there are a lot of them out there. And there was a vulnerability discovered on there that allows you to basically take them over very easily. So again, NetLab 360, really good article, where they talk about these multiple botnets that are exploiting this uh, vulnerability recently. You know, One to be aware of if you have GPON routers in your um, network, that's something you'd want to uh, take a look at and make sure you get them um, secured and updated. Uh, there are firmware updates to secure your device now, um, but there's definitely a lot of them out there. So this next one that I think is, it's still kind of an unknown. I don't really know what to make of this, and we've talked about it on the show before. We haven't talked about it in a while because it's really a weird event that occurs. Uh, what happens is, I want to say like every three or four days, there is a giant surge of scanning on port 5431 TCP um, from 100,000 devices or something, which is a lot. You know, we were talking previously, it was around 15,000 for that botnet. So if these guys are all doing it in concert so closely in time together, that's really unusual to get that many devices uh, really 
quickly all scanning at once um, for uh, this port. The reason it's in our chart this week is because it happened that this three or four day cycle kind of landed on today for us this week, whereas maybe last week it didn't really show up because we were in one of these gap windows here where there was no activity. Um, so an interesting one that probably requires more study. And we actually haven't caught any of these probes in our honey pots. So I don't really have any information about what they're trying to do or what they're looking for. So this one's kind of a, a mystery um, that comes and goes. Uh, and then the last one that I wanted to point out, which we've talked about on the show before as well, is port 5555 TCP. This is the Android debug bridge. We know that there's some number of devices, not a giant number of them out there, but on Android devices, you can go into your configuration settings and turn on the debug interface, and then you can connect to that with another device. And it's just like a lot of debuggers that are out there. It allows you kind of to get low-level access to the device to kind of do like set up breakpoints and code and walk through what's running on the device. And uh, if you accidentally leave that open, somebody bad guy could find it, connect to it, and instead of trying to debug a program, they could install malware on your device very easily, as a matter of fact. So there is a well-known family of malware called ADB Miner, which stands for Android Debug Bridge Miner, uh, that installs some cryptocurrency mining malware on these devices. And um, I believe most of this activity is related to that family of malware. There's probably some smaller numbers of uh, devices also engaged in there, maybe some other malware families, but this is the big one that's really been leveraging this. Um, what was interesting about that is that there are actually some devices that are being shipped with that uh, Android Debug Bridge already open and exposed. Um, so users may unknowingly be exposed on that port. There are um, some number of devices out there that have been shipped from the manufacturer with that debug port turned on, probably accidentally, and um, hopefully, um, hopefully it's accidentally. <laughs> and uh, uh, there's probably some number of people that have accidentally turned it on themselves and not realized or left it on accidentally after doing something. Mm -hmm. So definitely something that you would want to make sure you um, uh, disable on your device when it's not in use. And even when it is in use, don't do it over the internet. Yeah. You know, do it on a closed network somewhere where you know you're not going to have bad guys looking for your uh, your. Android debug port. Yeah. So. Keep, keep it in a lab environment and then be cognizant of the fact that it's also a worm. So right. if you've got other Android devices on the network, it would, it would be a good idea just to make sure everything's on the up and up before you actually turn that on. Right, so. right. absolutely. All right, and I think that's all we really had for this week on the internet weather. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.